And I'd like to introduce it with a story about Gertrude Stein on her deathbed, <clears throat> her last words. I don't know if you know the story. All of literary Paris knew that she was about to die, and they figured she'd probably have a few good things to say before she went. <laughs> and so they gathered around her bed, and after a while she raised her head from the pillow and said, What is the answer? Put her head back down. And everybody around the bed looked at each other and said, what do we say? And so finally, just before she went, she raised her head once more and she said, well, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard to tell from the story whether she was being smart or whether she was actually being wise. But if we compare her remarks with what the Buddha had to say, he said that the sign of the way to measure a person's discernment or wisdom is to look at how they frame a question, how they approach the question, how they go about answering it. The Buddha understood the need for what you might call a science of questions, understanding which questions are worth answering and not, because he saw that knowledge is like a tool, and the question is like the mold with which we create the tool. And so if you have a job that needs a screwdriver but you've molded a hammer, you've got the wrong, the wrong tool, you've been asking the wrong question. In particular, many times when we think about the question of not-self, you've probably heard either the Buddha teaches that there was no self or that you have no permanent self or no separate self. Um, It sounds like a sledgehammer. He's just knocking down any notion of self that you might have. Where when you actually look at how the the teaching functions in his teachings, it's more like a crowbar. He's trying to pry, pry off attachments because it's through attachment, it's through clinging that we suffer. And it's a tool for getting rid of these clingings. The need for the science of questions comes from the fact that he pointed out that from suffering comes to, come two reactions. One is bewilderment as to why it's happening. And then the second is a search for the way out. Now, oftentimes our search is colored by the bewilderment. We're confused. And so we start asking the wrong questions. We get the wrong tools and never can really come to the end of suffering because suffering is a very complex phenomenon. If it were very simple, we'd be all out of here by now. I wouldn't have to talk to you tonight. But because suffering is complex, you need to go into the questions that you're asking about it to see exactly where they're useful, where they create useful tools for getting rid of suffering and when they're not. The Buddha categorized questions into four four types. The first sort is the kind of question that deserves a straight answer. What time is it? You can give the time. It's a, it's a very easy sort of thing to give a straight answer. Some other questions, however, deserve a counter-question. When someone asks you a question, you should ask them a few questions first to see where they're coming from, what, what's lying behind the question, or to prepare them for the answer that you're going to give them. Once you're sort of talking the same dialogue or you're on the same page, then you can answer the question. Third kind of question requires an analytical answer. In other words, you take the terms of the question, you redefine them before you give an answer. One of the most classic examples in the Buddhist teachings was when someone was set up to ask a trick question of the Buddha. The question was, it's it's similar to, have you stopped beating your wife? Um, He said, would the Buddha ever say anything that was unpleasant? Um, And then if he said, no, he wouldn't, but he was on record of having said some things that Devadatta, his cousin, didn't like. And so I said, well, it's a lie. You obviously said things that displeased Devadatta. If he said, yes, he would say anything that was pleasant, they would, the answer would be, the retort would be, well, what's the difference between you and an ordinary person? So the person who's been set up to answer the, ask the question goes in to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, that's the kind of question that deserves an analytical answer. 
not a straight answer. And he backed up a bit and said, there are actually three issues when you're talking. One is the question of what you say, is it beneficial or not? The second issue, is it true or not? And third is, if it's pleasant or not. And the Buddha said, in his case, he would never say anything that was unbeneficial. He would never say anything that wasn't true. As for what's pleasant or unpleasant, he would look for the right time and place to say what was pleasant, to say what was unpleasant. And the person who had been set up said, well, right there, you've defeated the people who've tried to trick you. There was no response. So some questions require an analytical approach. And then there's a fourth kind of question that shouldn't be answered at all. It's totally useless. It gets you tied up in unnecessary issues that don't help in putting an end to suffering. So we should look at the question that's being asked when we said the Buddha has a teaching on not self. Okay, what question is he answering? What type of question is he answering? And we usually think that it's one of two questions. One is, is there a self? Is there no self? The second question might be, who am I? What is my true identity? And in both cases, the Buddha said, those are questions that should be put aside. If you ask whether there is a self or there isn't a self, no matter how you answer the question, you're going to get entangled in all sorts of problems. You've probably heard the issue, if there's no self, what gets reborn? If there's no self, who's meditating? If there's no self, why should I meditate? Or if the question of who am I is asked, once you identify yourself as something, the Buddha said you're limiting yourself. So why would you want to limit yourself through a self-definition? Given that these are the questions that are often asked, though we, we tend to see that there are, the not-self teaching is either a categorical answer to them, saying, no, there is no self, period. The second one is that it's an analytical answer, either that there is no permanent self, which the implication is, is that you're made up of five aggregates. There's the body, feeling, perceptions, thought constructs, and consciousness. These things are temporary and they're impermanent and they're going to fall apart. You might say, well, that is yourself, but you have no permanent self. Now, there are problems there. If you're, if you're made up of the five khandhas, and the five khandhas end with nirvana, is nirvana spiritual suicide? You're just putting an end to yourself entirely. That creates problems. Or if it's the analytical, and it's to say, well, there's no separate self, that you're one with everything, then the question is, how can you go to nirvana without dragging everybody else along? <laughs> or when the Buddha entered nirvana, why didn't he drag us along with him? You know? So either way, you've got just, you're creating all kinds of problems for yourself. But as I said, these questions are questions that the Buddha just put aside. He said they're not worth asking. And so he wouldn't, if, in fact, there was one case where someone came to him directly and asked, is there a self? He didn't answer. Is there no self? He didn't answer. The person got frustrated, got up and left. And so Ananda came to the Buddha and said, well, wait a minute, why didn't you answer him? And the Buddha said, if you answer saying that there is a self, you get involved in all the issues of eternalism, that there's some essence to us that never changes. If you say there is no self, then the question is, well, what happened to myself, or why are you taking away myself? You get into issues of annihilationism, that there's really nothing worth living for, nothing worth striving for. Either way, you get involved in problems. So the question then is, okay, what question is he answering when he teaches the doctrine of not-self? And it's better to look at that as, <clears throat> as a series of questions that he's asking, because he asked, he tends to ask questions in stages. When you're starting out on the practice, he says you start with a question that forms the basis of discernment, which is what is skillful, what is not skillful. In particular, and then you expand on that. What when I do it, 
will be for long-term happiness. What, when I do it, will be for long-term suffering? And the Buddha said, these are the questions that lie at the basis of all discernment, of all understanding. Now, for many of us who have some familiarity with the Buddhist teachings, this may sound strange. We, t- we tend to think of Buddhist wisdom or Buddhist insight in terms of the three characteristics. You know, things are stress, things are impermanent, they're stressful, they're not self. How does that relate to issues of skillful and not skillful? Um, and particularly in our Western background, I think we come to Buddhism at a disadvantage. Many times we think that we in the West have certain advantages in coming to the Dharma. We're more educated than most people. Um, We have a good philosophical background. But there's one issue in in which we're at a disadvantage in that um, in America we tend to be consumers more than producers. Or if we do produce, we produce for someone else and then we consume things that other people have produced and sold to us. There's kind of a disconnect in our lives. Whereas in Asian tradition and traditional cultures in general, people would produce the things that they would then consume. And the perspective of a you know, pure consumer as opposed to a perspective of a producer and a consumer are two very different things. When we listen to the teachings on the three characteristics from the point of view as consumers, things are impermanent, stressful, they change, they're not ours. It sounds like advice to consumers. Things are stressful, if they change, you better grab onto them fast before they go. Squeeze out as much enjoyment as you can get out of it, and then let go and get ready for the next one. There's a cartoon in the New Yorker years back. Two couples are sitting in a living room, and it's a very well furnished living room. And the husband is saying, one couple is saying, "Of course, it's had its ups and downs, but by and large, Margaret and I have found the consumer experience to be a rewarding one." <laughs> and so we think, well, the Buddha is giving us good advice on how to be a good consumer. Latch onto something. Embrace it without clinging. Have you, have, you heard, have you heard that statement many times? <laughs> have you ever wondered how you would embrace without clinging? <laughs> you hold on quick for a while, squeeze what you can, and then let go so you get ready for the next thing. Um, however, if you look in the perspective of, uh, of a producer, someone who's producing what they consume, the question becomes, what is worth producing? I have to put a lot of time, I have to put a lot of energy into this. Once I've got it, how much enjoyment, how much use am I going to get out of it? Is it worth my time and effort to produce these things? One illustration of the difference between our culture and traditional cultures um, relates to a poem that was very... It's one of the classics of Thai literature. It's kind of the Thai version of Tom Jones. Only there are two Tom Joneses, and they have lots of amorous adventures. And in one particular um, scene in the poem, one of the guys is going into the apartment of a woman that he's planning to seduce. And as soon as he gets into the apartment, there's this beautiful screen that divides the wall, divides the room, excuse me. And on the screen is painted a story. Now, what's important about the screen is that the woman herself painted the screen. And as the poem basically stops the question of his interest in the woman, and it gets absorbed in the screen itself to see how she tells this particular story on the screen, the skill with which she paints it, the style she uses, the way she tells a particular familiar story. In other words, by looking at the screen, you get a very good sense of who she is through her work. This was something that you know she produced for herself and was not only expressing herself, but was making a message to other people. You want to know me, you know my screen first. Compare that with how we get to know people and TV shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, 
when they take you around their house, how many of them are showing you things they made? And you're supposed to learn about them by their taste in buying things, their taste in their, also their, the amount of money they were able to spend to buy these things. It's a very different perspective. So for a pers- people listening to the Buddhist teachings, if they come from that perspective of people who produce and are expressing themselves in their productions for their own enjoyment, the Buddhist teachings on karma are, are for them the most important point. Exactly how much are we responsible for creating in our experience? And the Buddha says everything. Either through past actions or through present actions, we're the people who are shaping our experience. The question comes, okay, is, and this includes our sense of self, who we are. We create our sense of self by the way we identify with things. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it skillful? And in particular, he points out that you know, where there's the most clinging, there's also the most suffering. It's, can you think of anything you cling to more than your sense of self? This sense of self that you've created for yourself, you hold on to that more than anything else. And of course, there's going to be a lot of suffering. It would sound then that, well, in case if there's a lot of clinging, there's a lot of suffering, well, then just let go. It turns out it's not that easy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Because we live in a complex system. And if ever, any of you have ever studied complex systems, there's a particular law about them that there are only a few places in the system that you can get out. They're called resonance points or resonances. Basically, in a complex system, if it's divine, defined by mathematical equations, the only places where you can get out are where the equations interact in such a way that one of the members is divided by zero. Now, if you remember from mathematics in fourth grade, you can't divide by zero. What, what happens if you divide by zero? It goes out of the system. And in complex systems where you have certain points like this, that's where you get out. Those are the only places you can get out. Otherwise, you're just tied in the system. And that includes your sense of self, which is also part of the system. Now, if you start thinking in terms of self getting out of the system, there's a paradox, because exactly what's going to get out? So the Buddha says, don't focus on that particular question just yet. Focus more on the question of how can you act skillfully? What is skillful? Because what that does is two things. It takes you to those resonance points. It turns out the resonance points in our experiences are the points where the mind is calm, clear, still, in a sense of balance. Those are the points where you can get out. If you're not at that point, you want to act more and more skillfully, learn how to speak, learn how to act, learn how to think more and more skillfully, so it's nudging you to those points. This is why the Theravada emphasis on skillful action is not a distraction from the larger issues of life. Because after all, it's your intentions that are creating the system. And the intentions are going to get you to the right point. So instead of dealing in the larger abstractions, which tend to be terms we usually lie to ourselves about, you can cover all kinds of things under the rug of of abstractions. But if you focus specifically on what am I doing right now, what are the intentions behind it, are they skillful, are they not, you get yourself closer and closer and closer to those resonance points. At the same time, avoiding that whole issue of, well, when there's release, who gets released? Put that aside for the time being. Just focus on being more and more skillful. Um, So what you do in this case is you take the raw material out of which you are creating the self, those five aggregates that I mentioned earlier, form, feeling, perception, thought, constructs, and consciousness. You turn them into the path. Right thought, right view, right action, right speech. Say, take, for instance, right concentration. It's made out of five khandhas, or the five aggregates. 
You've got the form of the body that you're focusing on. You've got the feeling of pleasure that you're creating as you focus in on the breath. There's the perception, say, of the breath or whatever your object is. There are the thought constructs that are commenting on whether the, the meditation is going well, what you could do to nudge it more and more to a, a still spot. And then there's the consciousness of all this field that you're creating. So at that moment, the, the issue is not so much, is this myself or is not myself? Essentially, okay, is, this, is this a good experience to create? Is this is a good place to take the mind. And as you work on that, and the other factors of the path in terms of virtue, right mindfulness, right effort, alertness, all converge, are all ways of using those five aggregates that in the past you were carrying around as this load on your shoulders when you identified with them as yourself. You put them down and you make a path that you walk on to take you to those resonance points. Once you get to the point where the mind is still, um, then you can actually see this process of self-construction going on. It's a repeated process. You begin to see that your sense of self is a very complex thing. It's not one particular idea that you always adhere to. Sometimes you identify with your body. Sometimes you identify with your feelings. Sometimes you identify with a complex of things. It's kind of like an amoeba. It moves around, changes shape. If you could map your sense of self, it would be pretty bizarre. (laughs) So as you see this process of self-construction in action, on the one hand, you see that everything you could con- construct out of these aggregates is stressful. Once you create a sense of self, there's the question of, how can I maintain this self? What's the future? What's the, what's the past that this is coming from? Where is the future going? If you identify with your body, there's the question, okay, what happens when my body gets ill? What happens when it grows old? What's going to happen when it dies? Because you're holding on to it. If you didn't hold on to it, there wouldn't be a problem. But the question is, if you can't just let go, well, you have to get the mind to these particular points where you can see the act of self-construction in action and see every time you cling to something, every time you identify with something, there's going to be suffering. So you start deconstructing these things out of which you've been creating your sense of self. And then you look at the raw materials and you ask yourself, in this sense of form, these feelings, these perceptions, these thought constructs, this sensory consciousness, could you create anything that you would want to make a self out of or identify with a self? It's kind of like seeing that you've um, been making a house out of raw meat or frozen meat. You're making a house out of frozen meat. You know, It's solid. You can carve it. You can do all kinds of nice things. But it's frozen meat. It's going to thaw eventually. <laughs> and then it's going to get, you know... <laughs> So you've got these basic raw materials that are just not going to help. This is where that second set of questions comes in. You've got the mind of this. Using this question of skillfulness, you bring the mind to that point of what you might call the resonance points in your experience. And up to this point, you've actually been identifying. It may have been sort of in the background, but you've been identifying with yourself in terms of being self-reliant. You know, I'm the one who's following the path. There's a sense of self-worth. I'm the one who's been able to create this sense of self so up to that point, a sense of self can be useful. Don't let go of it too fast. Make sure you've got this, your, this self to the point where it can open up in the resonance points. And then you ask yourself, then you begin to ask yourself, as you take these things apart, realize that any construction you make would be stressful. Realize that the individual things themselves are not the sort of things that you would want to identify with. Then you can ask, like, is this me? Is, this, is it appropriate? Is it 
appropriate in the sense of would I really want to identify with this? Would I really want to identify with these things? Say that either they're me or they're mine or they're myself. And if you get the mind to the point where you say, you know, really, I wouldn't want that. Because you see it's stressful. Once you see that it's not necessary, then you let go. And you kind of you know, get out of the system. This creation of experience that's been causing so much stress and so much complexity. And you see that this question, okay, is this me? Is this something I would want to identify with? It's very different from asking, what am I? It's a different type of question. Because you can go with things one by one by one, and there's no sort of construct in the back saying, well, you know, my true self has to be this, my true self has to be that. But you look at the particulars of your experience and see one by one by one, I don't want to identify with this. When you finally exhausted the whole list of possibilities, you let go and the mind, there's, there's total freedom. And the, the Buddha doesn't describe this total freedom too much because I think he would realize, one, you can't really imagine it. And secondly, if you try to imagine it, that would become something else that you would hold on to. Another clinging thing. He does give a few examples. He gives a few hints, though, and they use the word nirvana, which is an analogy. He said it's like a fire going out. Now we in the West, when we think of fires going out, say, "Well, the fire is just out of existence. That's the end of it." Um, in his time, he said, fire was an, the burning fire was a, a symbol of attachment, clinging, agitation, and heat. To test the clinging, go home and get a stick with some fire on what's burning on the end. Try to shake the fire off the end of the stick. It doesn't go. It holds on. Their image, though, was that if the fire goes out, the fire has finally let go and it's free. That's what the image is all about, the word term nirvana. And at that point, the question of who's experiencing this total freedom, you don't care. (laughs) Whether you say it's a self, whether you say it's not, not a self, who it is, it doesn't matter. You've got total freedom. And that's what the whole purpose of the practice is, is to get you, you know, totally beyond suffering. Once you reach that point, then you realize that you, you know, have avoided the whole paradox of okay, if, if you know, I want I want to gain freedom, but who is this I who wants to gain freedom? He says, put that aside. If you'd gotten yourself tied up in that, you never would have gotten out. By putting aside, focusing on the question of what's skillful, you bring the mind to the right point as you try to get more and more skillful in your actions. And he gives specific examples on how to do this. It's probably one of his most basic teachings and we tend to overlook it all the time. That was before you do something, ask yourself, this intention I have to act, is it going to be harmful or is it not going to be harmful? If it looks like it's going to be harmful, you drop it. Don't do it. If it doesn't look like it's going to be harmful, you go ahead and try. While you're acting, Check it again, because some some actions bring their results immediately. Okay, is this causing harm? Is it not? If it's causing harm, you stop. If it doesn't seem to be causing causing harm, you continue with it. After you're done, you're not really done. You can reflect back on the results, the long-term results of that action. If you saw that it caused harm, you go talk it over with someone else who's also practicing the path. Get their perspective on what happened, and then resolve you're not going to make that mistake again. If you didn't see any harm, you can take joy in the fact that you're getting more skillful. And we take this process of examining our actions, even though it may seem sort of repetitive, sort of dealing with minutia, but it's in the minutia that we're creating all of our suffering. Sort of what's, what we're doing on the small scale is also the suffering that we're creating on the large scale.
You focus on the minutiae, that's something you can handle, action by action by action. You find that you do get the mind to those points where, what we call the resonance points, where you can just take apart those intentions, find a, achieve a state where there is no intention, and you're free. So it's in, in the process of our daily lives that we work towards the freedom, not focusing on the issue of, do I have a self, do I not have a self, who am I? Because that gets you more and more entangled and gets you out of focusing on what precisely am I doing right now. Focus on that, and that's the doorway to freedom. So when someone asked you, did the Buddha said there was no self? Well, no, he never said that. Did he say that you had an perm- impermanent self? Well, no, he never said that either. Did he say you were one with everything? He didn't say that. A lot of questions that he avoided. You can imagine why people at his time were frustrated. They came with all these good questions. Is the world eternal? Is the world not eternal? No, wouldn't answer. There was one monk one time who said, look, if you don't answer my questions, I'm going to disrobe. Okay? Is the world eternal? Is it not? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is the body the same thing as the self, the, the, the soul? Is the soul something different from the body? What happens to someone after they gain awakening? Do they exist? Do they not exist? The Buddha said, I'm sorry. I'm not going to answer those questions. He had more important questions to ask. You know the, you know the image of the, the man struck with the arrow. Someone's been hit by the arrow, and they take him to the surgeon. And the surgeon's getting ready to remove the arrow, and the man says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to know who shot the arrow. I want to know what kind of wood it was made out of, where it was made, what kind of feathers. As the Buddha said, you're going to die. But if you say, okay, take out the arrow, and this is what his teachings are for, to take the arrow out. Then, you know, if you have the time left over and you want to trace back the arrow, that's up to you. <laughs> but take it out first. <laughs> so. so the questions the Buddha was asking were, okay, one, what is skillful, what is not? And ultimately you get to the point, is it skillful to create a self? Is it not skillful to create a self? And, you, and he says, it is up to a point. If it teaches you to be more skillful in your thoughts, words, and deeds, to have a strong sense of self-reliance, self-responsibility, creates that sense of self-esteem that gets you more and more into that healthy state of calm, then a sense of self is useful. Once you've gotten there, then you can take it apart. So you see the teaching, it's part of a, it's part of a training, it's part of a system of questions. When you understand that, then you find that the teaching not self is very useful in everything you do, so especially in your quest for freedom. Those are my thoughts on the matter. We let people go first before, <laughs> and then we can have some questions and answers. I was supposed to speak for 40 minutes. <laughs> it's 25. <laughs> you can ask for a refund down at the Donna Box. I gave the same talk last night in New York. I've never done this t- the same talk two nights in a row. I was afraid of being like one of those marine sergeants who says, look, I've been telling you all these years, you know, 
do this. <laughs> As the new recruits come through and one after another, I've been saying this over and over again. When are you going to get it? <laughs> yes. Okay, wait till we have some other questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I apologize if I missed this at the beginning. Mm. There's a great deal of emphasis placed on determining whether something is skillful or not. Skillful. Right, right. Mm. Whether it causes harm or not. If it doesn't cause harm, then it's skillful. Yeah. It was based on a system of questions that the Buddha taught his son. His son was seven years old. And I think it would be interesting someday to do a book on the Buddha teaching little kids. Because some of his teachings to the little kids are the most basic and sort of clear up the issues. And this is one he asked. You know, look at your actions. He said, look at your actions as if they were a mirror. This is a reflection of your mind. And particularly, it's the intention that lies behind the action. That's, that's what you judge it by. But then you also have to judge the actual results of the action. You may have had good intentions, but it turns out that you weren't really skillful. And this is where we have that saying that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They were good, but they weren't skillful. Mm-hmm. That was how they defined it, and sometimes it's sometimes it's not skillful not to do something. You, you can cause harm by you know the, the sin, what they call the sins of omission, where you, we step back and don't say anything. You think, well, I'm, I'm not going to take any responsibility, but it can be very unskillful. So you you, you choose your actions in terms of looking at their results. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. For me, very often, that's still not enough. I mean, mm-hmm. I can see this is going to cause harm, but some devil in me goes ahead and does it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem that simple, but okay, uh, category harm, not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Category uh, harm, it's fine, I'll go ahead. Mm-hmm. It's not so cut and dry. There's something else going on. There's a lot going on. And, some, and one of the questions is, do you really wish for your own happiness? And this is why we have metta practice, and it has to start with yourself what they call metta, or loving-kindness, or goodwill practice. Just remind yourself, you know, I really don't want to suffer. And so if there's that part of you that says, I don't give a damn, I'm going to do it because I like it, uh, that's when you have to examine that particular intention, say, what voice is that that's speaking? Do I want to identify with that voice? Do I want to give it power over my life? And maybe you have to bang your head against the wall a couple times, but then you finally realize, you know, this hurts. And not only that, but also seeing that you don't have to do it. Once you see, I don't have to do this, this is causing suffering, drop it. There's something inside you, well, that little devil made me do it. I'll you know, look and check and see exactly what's happening. 
there's also the whole question of you know how can you be totally skillful all at once and nobody can you learn bit by bit by bit as your sensitivity gets more and more you know precise and more and more clear then you know, your actions get more and more skillful a large problem here in the west and i think I've, it seems to be more than there is in thailand is that we really don't want to make mistakes if we make them we don't want to admit them and it's important that how else you're going to learn, how else to get skillful. You take, if you want to learn how to play the guitar, you go off in a room someplace and you play the guitar and fiddle around with it, make lots of mistakes. Well, that doesn't work. Try something else. You try this. Well, that works. And then bit by bit by bit, you get to be a better guitar player. Part of this, of course, has to do with our, our education system. You know, immediately you make a mistake, bang, you're graded down. And so you don't want to make mistakes. You're afraid to make mistakes. And it's why people enjoy doing the things where there's not a teacher sort of grading them all the time. You take the guitar into the room, close the door, and nobody complains. So. But if we could take that attitude towards our actions, of course we're going to make mistakes. Let's learn from them. I have a friend who was uh, a potter, and she decided to go to Japan to study with a master potter. And she went over there, and she was having a problem with the fact that every day she would put her pots into the kiln and they'd come out, and some of them would be okay and some of them would crack. And the master potter would be putting his pots in, and you know, every every set coming out, you know, perfect, perfect, perfect. Until one day she got to the, the kiln, and it turned out that particular firing that night, a lot of his pots had cracked. The difference was that he wasn't getting upset. He was in the middle of the kiln trying to figure out, okay, what went wrong? What did I do wrong this time? I'm going to come back the next time, and I'll, I'll you know, do it something differently. So the difference between you know an ordinary craftsman and a really master craftsman, one of the differences is that willingness to learn from mistakes, to keep monitoring and learning all the time. If you're always ready to learn, you're always going, you're always willing to look at your mistakes, and you can always learn. Yes. <laughs> well, you can just look at it. This other person wants me to feel bad. I'm not going to feel bad. Right, and then so okay, but now and I can I, I understand what you're saying, but let's go to the place of okay, now I feel bad mm-hmm. because that was the other person's intention, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not so skillful in this area, so I feel that way. I think, um, and I see it. I see it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I still feel bad, and I have a problem. Self, in a mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. 
um, pushing towards the edge of uh, having skillful behavior towards <laughs> others, what others' intentions are. Put up with the fact that you've got people in the world whose intentions are not necessarily in your best interest. One. Secondly, learn how to defuse the situation. Sometimes that may mean looking like you feel bad but not feeling bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, um,. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't feel I'm wrong. You know what I mean? Is it, I mean, is it being self-righteous? It's part of it, part of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also learning how to manipulate your boss. I mean, there's... Well, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm feeling bad about that. Mm-hmm. You know, again, mm-hmm. um, I'm in a situation where I'm, you know, how do I, how do I rationalize the skillful behavior of manipulating someone? <laughs> Look, if it makes your boss feel good, if you can speak in such a way that it diffuses, the, because the boss probably has a lot of tension in his or her life too, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's mirroring. I mean, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Try to use humor in a situation, mm-hmm. and get the boss to see a little bit of the humor too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm to, I had an example in my mind just now, and it slipped just a second. Um, out at out at the monastery, we have a Dharma study group, and there's an Asian woman, a Korean woman, and. All, after all my years in, in Thailand, I think part of me thinks like an Asian too. That you're looking at a situation. Okay, how do you speak to this particular person so that you you know keep the situation calm? That you keep the situation. And there's a, a woman in the in the group who gets very upset with that kind of behavior. She says, "I want everybody to be honest and open and just tell what they really think about things." And the Asian woman and I look at each other and I say, "That's so childish." <laughs> I mean, there are times when total honesty is good, but as the Buddha himself said, there are times when total honesty is not so good. You don't lie, but you don't have to tell everything. And you try to create a situation where you know, people can get together and you can do the work. There's room for you know reasonable mistakes. And if you show the intention, okay, I'm sorry, I made the mistake. Next time around, I'll try to be more skillful. Um, where people can actually talk to each other rationally like that. Now, if you can create that situation, you've done a real good. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. Yes. I'd like to go back to what you said a little earlier. Mm-hmm. You, you said uh, you don't have to do it mm-hmm. if it's not if you're just the devil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you apply that uh, to addictions? There's a certain kind of sense of compulsion there. Mm-hmm. Usually, someone once pointed out that addictions many times come from a lack of imagination. You can't imagine yourself approaching that particular situation or reacting to that situation in another way. 
He said, well, this, this is the way I know. I know it's going to make me miserable, but it's the only way I know how to do this. And so you just kind of plow into it. And if you can just sit down and imagine yourself reacting in a different way to that, and if there are particular sensations or particular feelings that come up, imagining different ways of reacting to them that are more effective, you find that you can get around the addiction. And once you can prove yourself to yourself once, okay, that I can find an alternative way of satisfying whatever deep need I had that I was unskillfully meeting with another skillful way of meeting that particular need. The next time around it gets easier and it gets easier and easier. But many times it just begins with that sitting down and imagining, okay, there must be another way of doing this. Identifying what the need is, what the actual real need is, and then think, okay, what's an alternative way of, of dealing with that? So that instead of just total denial, you say, okay, there is this felt need, but there's another way of meeting it that doesn't involve all the the detrimental results that you would normally associate with the addiction. It's interesting, the Buddha has a passage where he talks about four kinds of actions there are in the world. One is you know, things you like to do give good results. Things you don't like to do give bad results. Okay, Those two are no-brainers. The difficult ones are the things that you like to do give bad results, the things you don't like to do give good results. And we often think of that as a test of willpower. And the Buddha said it's a test of your intelligence. Intelligence meaning, okay, one, distinguishing these, you know, the fact that the, the action is very different from the, the results you get. it, And then secondly, learning how to talk yourself into doing the things that you don't like to do but give good results. Learning how to talk yourself into not doing the things you like to do to give bad results. And intelligence is a quality of your imagination. It's a quality of your just noticing what's going on and having the tools to encourage yourself to do the right thing. But if you don't, like, at this point in time, have that intelligence, is mm-hmm. Depend on somebody else's. It can help you, because you begin to identify exactly what is this felt need. Because many times it's not what you thought it was. And you begin to see the kind of trigger and then the, mo- the patterns that go around that. And you're saying, hey, you know, these, these patterns are really not necessary. There must be another pattern I can follow. So the meditation helps as giving you that basis for observing what's really going on. Simple example, you wake up in the morning and say, I can't get up. And you ask yourself, okay, exactly, which sensation in my body is preventing me from getting up? You just go through the body. And you find that there's nothing. And they say, you know you're up. <laughs> I mean, that's a very simple example, but it's just being able to take that felt need apart into its component factors and say, okay, exactly, what here is making me, you know, shoot heroin up my. Which particular sensation? Which particular idea? And when you take it apart, you feel that once it's taken apart, there's nothing that, that's you know, so compelling. And the meditation helps in that kind of deconstruction. Yes. Now, I'm curious about actions that seem to have both good and bad results. Mm-hmm. So something seems skillful, yet at the same time you're aware that it's going to have negative repercussions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You act, you look sad in order to make your boss feel better. Yeah, maybe that perpetuates behavior in the boss that you're, mm-hmm, 
is replayed with another employee. And mm-hmm. so, so how do you weigh in the cause of things like Iraq and mm-hmm. <laughs> By looking sad for your boss is going to cause us to bomb a rack. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, the grades of skillfulness. You know, it's not that you know there's unskillful and un- and skillful, and there's nothing in between. Okay, this is you know, so this is a relatively skillful maneuver. Maybe next time I can think of something better. And again, this is where practice in mindfulness helps: is that you can. Often these inspirations come to you when the mind is really still and quiet. If you can maintain that kind of stillness in the midst of you know, the, the storm around you, you find that ideas that otherwise would not have occurred to you suddenly pop up because you've created that space. Killing is always unskillful. And so once you rule that out, then you have to start thinking of other alternatives. I mean, the Buddhist teachings on, on skillful and unskillful action fall into two sorts. It's kind of like wilderness training. If you've ever gone into a course of wilderness training, or even if you've just gone to Alaska. You know, up in Alaska, they have these billboards up for the stupid people from the lower 48 who come up there and don't know anything about wilderness, they give you a basic course, you know, the do's and don'ts about bears, basically. They actually call the billboards bear awareness. <laughs> and they're the do's and don'ts. You know, a bear rushes at you, don't run away. A bear attacks you, lie down and play dead. A bear nibbles at you. He's probably curious to see if you really are dead, so you allow him to nibble at you a little bit. Okay. So you've got these basic do's and don'ts. And that's like the precepts. You don't kill. Period. He keeps the precepts short, clear, simple, because the times when you most need them are the times when your mind is the most strung out. It's not that the precept against killing is only when we're sitting here and being nice and rational in a, in a meditation hall. You know, when you're out there and when you're really tempted to kill, boom, don't kill. It's there. That kind of thought stays in your mind. So there are the basic do's and don'ts that you have to follow when, you're, when you know you're going to lose your head. I mean, a bear is running at you. It takes a lot of willpower to remember, okay, they say don't run. But that's what the, that's what the precepts are for, to hold us in place when things get really, really difficult. However, there are cases out in the wilderness, like the bear chewing on you. The bear has attacked you, you lie down and play dead, and he's chewing on your arm. The question is, is he chewing on your arm out of curiosity, or is he chewing on your arm out of hunger? <laughs> now, there's no do or don't for that one. You have to use your own sensitivity, <laughs> your own awareness of what's happening. That requires a lot of mindfulness and a lot of alertness and good, strong powers of concentration. Because they say, if it turns out the bear is actually chewing on you out of hunger, that's when you fight back. Different response. So you've got the, the do's and the don'ts that are you know, pretty clear-cut. And then there's the gray area where you have to use your powers of perception and mindfulness and alertness. The more you practice those, the easier it is to see what might, you know, what's going on and to respond appropriately. And so in the areas of the gray areas, it's, it's not that there is an unskillful and a skillful reaction. There are gradations. And you say, okay, I can't think of the most skillful reaction right now, but this is the one that I can think of. I'll try that. And then maybe the next time around, you, as you keep your mind open to it, maybe I can improve better and better. And then you start working towards things that are more and more skillful. 
Now, as you get to you know treat your boss with more and more humor, the boss suddenly becomes your friend in this instead of being your enemy. Then it's a lot easier. And then we won't attack Iraq. <laughs> yes. Then don't do it. If there's if you if you're going about to do something, you don't know what your intention is. Say, I refuse to do this until I know my intention. But is there a is there a skillful means for increasing your comprehension of the intention? That's why we get into the present moment. And many of us think we meditate to get into the present moment because the present moment is a wonderful moment and it's a nice place to be. And no. <laughs> there are a lot of pleasant, present moments that are not pleasant moments, you know. But at the present moment is where your intention is being formed. And the more carefully you are in the present moment, the more it, the easier it is to see that. So this is why we meditate: is to get in touch with our intentions. And then, then the real work begins: is sorting out which ones are skillful and unskillful. And that's where the discernment works. We think, okay, you get in the present moment, you see that all things are impermanent, you're awakened. That's not how it happens. You get in the present moment, you say, my gosh, there's this whole nest of intentions in there. So you start taking them apart. And by practicing, you know, developing goodwill and met, you know, loving kindness, both for yourself and for other people, it strengthens your motivation to act only on the skillful intentions. Use both whatever you need to do in order to know the intention. We like to think that meditation is a process of not thinking. You've got to think when you meditate. It's simply a question of focusing your question, you're thinking on the right topics. After all, as the Buddha said, the beginning of discernment is this question of skillful and not skillful. And that does require you just focusing and watching things for a while to see what actions are and what the results are. And also having, everyone likes, hates the word judgment, but um, you have to judge. Think of it as being judicious, okay? <laughs> but you have to be judicious in what you do and what you don't do. What's better and what's not better. Because this question of skillful and not skillful actually forms the basis for the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Unskillful action, craving, it's inside. Unpleasant result is the suffering that comes from craving. Skillful action is the path, the Eightfold Path, and the, skillful, and the desired result is the end of suffering. That lies at the, you know, it's the underpinning of the Four Noble Truths. Yes? A thought that just came to me about that. Um, I frequently tend to um, equate intentions with reasons. Mm-hmm. And, but there's something about the way you just asked that question that made me think that they're really not quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be lots of reasons to do something that may or may not be my intention. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about, thoughts or about that. Well, just look at that. If you say, you know, my reason for doing this, and we learn how to dress up our reasons for doing things at a very early age. You know? And we not only tried to deceive our parents, we ended up deceiving ourselves a lot. And so just you know, try to be as honest as possible. Why am I really doing this? Because there is, you know, the element of intention really is your why, what, what the goal that you're trying to get at. Um, 
and just it's a process of you know peeling away bit by bit by bit. Because once you keep in mind, if you're lying to yourself, you know, there's a great possibility for suffering, which is the opposite of what we learn as children. If you lie, you can get out of suffering, right? <laughs> but it's the, the teaching, the, the t- teaching, the practice turns that around. So you really cause more suffering by lying to yourself and covering up your intentions with these. I had a student one time who had been to a retreat where they taught you know, the big issue in life, the way of bringing the practice into your daily life, is to see daily life as an interaction of the absolute and the relative. And she tried that for a week. And in fact, the question she asked me, as she was ask, asking me the question about this, her hands started going like this, you know, to get, see the absolute and the relative. And she was just getting more and more entangled in this. It's because you're dealing with abstractions. Now, abstractions are the best way to deceive yourself. You know? If you get down to the minutia, what am I doing right now? Why am I doing it? That strips a lot of that stuff away. Yes? I was thinking while you were talking that both the questions that were asked of the Buddha mm-hmm. and a lot of the questions we ask mm-hmm. um, are, are about categories and things. Mm-hmm. And the answers all seem to be talking about processes and right. things you right. have to do. Right, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So we get stuck into the big abstractions, the, yeah. Right, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you look at the history of Buddhist thought. The first person who, in Buddhist history who said there is no self, it wasn't until about 500 years after the Buddha passed away. <laughs> and ever since then, that's become okay. the hallmark of the Buddhist teachings, there is no self. It was Asvagosha, the, the poet who wrote the Buddha Charita. He seems to be the first person to, at least the earliest extant example of having made that statement, just plain, okay, there is no self. Other people at the, pretty much at the same time came out either with that, that sort of categorical answer or the more analytical answer, say, well, you, know, you don't have a personal self, but there is this kind of impersonal identity made out of the contest. But pri- prior to that point, nobody would answer the question. In fact, you have some texts where the giants are complaining. You know, that was another religion in the Buddhist times. And you can't get a straight answer out of the Buddhists on this question. <laughs> I think it was, you know, in the early years, they, they sensed that. And the Buddhist teachings really was about action, the process you go through in sort of what you do and then learning to examine what you do, to bring your mind to that point where you can totally let go. Yes? So how would you translate the, the Pali? Anatta, anatta, not self. Not self. Right. It's not no self, it's not self. Yes. One of those you can speak to what the benefits are of doing these practices as a monk or as a bhikkhu mm-hmm. rather than as a, a lay person. And also, uh, what you found was in studying the texts, and not all people do the practice in that way. They take just the central teaching and meditate mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. uh, actually getting into studying the Pali Suttas and you know, Mahayana texts or whatever. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole question of being skillful and not skillful is a very basic, you know, no matter whether you're a monk or a layperson, it's, it's the same issue. You spit into the wind, it comes back at you. <laughs> and that rule doesn't change when you get ordained, you know. <laughs> um, but a very basic part of my training in Thailand was just that 
trying to teach the qualities that you need in order to be more observant? Because this is the basic quality for learning a skill is to be observant. Watch your actions. In the case of my teacher, one of my jobs was to look after his hut, to clean up and get everything in the right place. The problem was he never told me where the right places were. So how do you find out? Well, you watch. When he puts things, where does he put them? And if you get too sort of blatant about watching him, he'll turn around and turn his back to you. And so you have to be more and more subtle about this. And as a result, you get you get more you know imaginative. You get have more ingenuity in trying to figure out how to get information out of him. And so right there, he's teaching that the qualities you need that when you're going to meditate. So you know they start from the outside, especially when you get this crazy Westerner coming to stay with you. You've really got to, you've got to start with very basic things. <laughs> In terms of studying the text, um, it helps keep a check on the whole question of whether we're taking the teachings and skewing them too much into our own culture. Um, like the whole question of intention, you very rarely see the question of intention in a basic meditation manual, but it's basic. The whole teaching. I mean, the teaching on karma, everybody says, ooh, karma and rebirth, I don't want to go there. (laughs) But when you look at what the Buddha is asking you to believe, when you believe in karma, one, you're responsible for your actions. Don't we all want to be responsible for our actions? Sometimes we say, no, no, I don't want that. But if if you really have any, you know, sensitivity, you realize, I'd hate to have somebody else acting through me, it would be creepy. Okay? Okay, one, you're responsible for your actions. Two, the quality of the action is determined by the quality of your intention. That's something you have some control over. And three, then that, that your actions do give results based on the quality of the intention, and you'll experience those results. That's all you're being asked to believe. It's an important, it's an important principle. And so the people say, well, the teaching on karma came you know, 300 years later. It was these people who were trying to impose this on the teaching doesn't make any sense, because it's all about, as you said, process. It's all about action. Prior to the Buddha, people either said, okay, everything you do is totally predetermined by the stars, it's determined by some god acting through you, or else there's no causation at all. That's scary. Everything is totally random. Who could live in a totally random life when they do experiments on pigeons? If they have, you know, there's a little bar, there's a green light, and you push the bar, yeah, then you get food. If there's a red light, you push the bar, you don't get food. Now, pigeons in a situation like that are very you know, normal, you know, well-adjusted pigeons. If sometimes you press the bar and you get the food on the green light, sometimes it's the red light, it's a random pattern, those pigeons get very neurotic. Mm-hmm. And the problem is with the causality behind intention and the causality operating in our life, it's very complex, and many times we can't see the pattern. But if you hold to the principle, I'm going to look at my intentions and hold on to that, the Buddha and all these noble disciples, that that gets you out. And so it's, you know, it's, it's reading the text when you begin to see that there is a very different emphasis from what you normally hear. So it's a good corrective to the, sort of, the Dharma smoothies we get served to us many times. <laughs> <laughs> Yes.
The Buddha always says, don't identify. Don't try to identify yourself with anything, because you're always going to limit yourself. Again, it's one of those questions he just says, put aside. Now, this is the whole problem with Buddhist philosophy for all these centuries, is people ask the questions and try to answer the questions. So the Buddha said, hey, wait a minute, put that question aside. I mean, it doesn't start with the, the Mahayana. It starts before the Mahayana. But the Mahayanas are actually giving other answers to the same questions. So I said, skillfully, it would be best thing to put that aside. Right. So you ask yourself, do I want to follow something that was unskillful or just kind of let it go? You can use it up to a point. Again, it's a question of using these, these ideas. Okay, if, if there's there, you say oh, there's something in here that's suffering. Okay, let's get let's get rid of the suffering. And at that point, you can put aside the question of who am I really. But just okay, where is the suffering? What's being done here that's causing the suffering? And then you finally work through the point. You say, well, I don't need that sense of my, I anymore. You use it until it's no longer useful. Then you drop it. Life at the monastery. Um, it's pretty nice. <laughs> we have an avocado orchard out in northern San Diego County. Um, a lot of it got blown over in the big Santa Ana wind a couple of weeks back. But um, we're at the end of the road. We're surrounded by Indian land. It's a very quiet place to practice. Um, although there was a member of CIMC who came out a couple of years back and after one day of meditating under the trees, he came and he said, I can't meditate here, it's too much noise. <laughs> and I said, what noise? And he said, well, there's the wind and the leaves and there's the bugs. <laughs> and, the <laughs> and Fortunately, after two or three days, he adjusted the noise level. We invite lay people to come out if they're interested in practicing. We don't give specific retreats, but people can come out for periods of time and participate in the life of the monastery. There's group meditation, there's individual meditation under the trees. Each person will have a, a platform and a walking path under the trees. Places where you can pitch tents. One meal a day. Some work periods, some question and answer periods. Dharma talk every night. 
that's the life of the monastery. Anything else? No, we do have. Do we? <laughs> but we we do have, we do have a guest house, but most of the people in the guest house just long for those tents. <laughs> um, the tents are quieter. We did one time have a visitor who from New York City, who I had to spend a whole week. He was going to be there for two weeks, and he had to spend a whole week you know, pleading with him. But well, you really do want to get out in the tent. It's nice. You're more alone. It's quieter. He said, I don't know, this, this wilderness, this is really scary. <laughs> I said, you know, you walk down the streets in Manhattan and you're not scared. I mean, come on. <clears throat> so we finally get him out in the tent. Well, it so happens that one of the neighboring orchards had this dog that was kind of psychotic. <laughs> and he chooses that night to come into the monastery. <laughs> so our visitor from New York... Around midnight, decides he has to go out to the bathroom, so he unzips the tent, and there's this dog stealing that gear. He says, I don't think I have to go out. He zipped it up. So. But most often, we don't have psychotic dogs. <laughs> so. um, One story I'd like to close with has to do with questions. Um, they tell the story of a John Cha who had been invited to England to give it to give Dharma talks. And after one of the Dharma talks, there was a question and answer period. And one woman asked, asked him, he said, we've had a lot of teachers coming through here, and there's one question that I've asked everyone and have never gotten a satisfactory answer. And the question is, when a person attains nirvana, what happens? Does the person go out of existence? Do they, not ex- do they still exist in some other form? Um, could you explain this for me? He said, well, this is one of those questions they don't answer, but I'll try to explain why. Well, there's a candle burning right next next to where he was sitting. And he said, now see the flame of the candle. Yeah. Now while the f- candle is burning, we can talk about the flame. We can talk about the color. We can talk about the shape, the brightness of the flame. Now if we put it out, and put it out with his fingers, can we talk about the flame? No. So in the same way, it's when someone gains nirvana, attains nirvana, we can't really talk about them for the same kind of reason. He says, does that answer satisfy you? She said, no. (laughs) He said, well, in that case, I'm not satisfied with your question. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that the next time you get a question like that. Okay, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.